wow, when I climbed Mount Victoria, oh, it was such a funky day because the clouds were up, right up to the edge of the mountain on, on the front side, so we couldn't see the big drop down the glacier, and down the backside was, you could see all the rubble gullies. I didn't have a camera on that trip, and I, I still think of that. Hey, Weekenders, welcome back to the Art of Photography podcast, where we share our passion on photography and how share how photography have given us hope, purpose, and happiness for many of us. Now, today I have uh, a guest um, who's not only a photographer, but also an award-winning as well as published um, writer. So she's based here in Canadian Rockies, and um, I'm so excited to have her on board. Hey, Lynn, how are you doing? I'm good, Stanley. How are you doing? I'm doing perfect. It's a little bit warm here in um in in uh, oh, where it's we are. Warm. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I uh, I I never thought it's gonna be this warm ever in winter well, here in Canada. Just, <laughs> no, well, yeah, you've been living in the Rockies, and one thing to know is that winter changes a lot. It varies a lot all across Canada. It's different everywhere, and in the Rockies we get wild, wild swings. So. It can be plus six one day and minus 26 the next day when that happens. That's crazy. Montreal. Montreal winters are totally different. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy because like last year I had like a pretty much like as soon as I think November hits, it never like I never see water coming out of the sky. It's all like freezing. It's water. It's just in the snow form. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. And our cold spell came really late last year. It was like uh-huh. late February when we had the minus 25, minus 30 days. That's a bit late. Usually we get them earlier, but every year is different. And yeah. you know what? It is warmer than when I first came to this part of the country. Yeah, it's yeah. I can imagine. I mean, um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, look, welcome. And um, I'm so glad to have you in here. I'm so excited to talk to you, actually. Um, and um, Give us a little bit of introduction. Um, who's Lynn Martel? Um, and um, yeah, share share with the listeners who are you and how do you kind of get in here? Well, uh, I'm a writer. That's my first thing. But I'm also a passionate photographer. Um, I grew up in Montreal. Montreal at that time was the biggest city in Canada. It was mini New York. It was hip and happening, and fashion and music and dance clubs. That was my life. I thought that was what was important in the world was. And dancing and music is very important. But then as a 20-year-old, my sister came out to dance to the Rockies. And I mean, if you look at a map of Canada, that's like five hours on an airplane. It's a long ways away. Um, She came out here and I came to visit and we both ended up staying. So that's almost 40 years now. So um Living, yeah, coming to the mountains and Banff, then you got to understand that's before the internet. It's before much music or MTV. It's VCRs were brand new. Nobody had a computer in their house. Cell phones? No, none of that. I remember my first answering machine. So to come and come from a happening city like Montreal, where the food, the music, it's very cosmopolitan, multicultural city. Yeah, to all of a sudden be in Banff this little town of like 8,000 people in the mountains. It was a game changer for sure, in a lot of ways. Um, People were very friendly. 
if you're a 20 year old getting to Banff, it's a big party. <laughs> it's better than going to university because <laughs> uh, you don't have class in the morning, but you went, we went to work hungover a lot. But, but um, it was also then a total commitment because people now live in mountain towns and they work remotely and you know they're connected to people all over the world. For us to stay in Banff meant your whole life was in Banff. You know, I spoke to my parents on the phone like once a month. They probably phoned me. <laughs> you know, like, and thankfully they retired here and my mom is 83, still hiking, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing. She's great. Um, that's no longer with us. But um, yeah, so it was a total commitment. Your whole life, your work, your play, your friends, your world was in the small mountain town. That's that's crazy. That's amazing. I mean, um, it's it's so inspiring. Sorry to hear about your um your mom. Um, no, um, mom's good. Mom's good. Oh, okay. Mom's still here. She's eighty three. She's still good. She lives in Camor. She's out all the time. We lost my dad five years oh, ago. Right. Sorry. So that's that's where I was like, huh? okay. Uh, so that's that's amazing to hear. And um, yeah, like um. It's so inspiring. That, that is one of the most inspiring thing when I move here to Canada, just seeing these people that are like 60, 70, 80 years old that still going up this mountain. And, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm on early on my early 30 and I would bring my backpack and I go like first um, switch back. I'd be like, oh, my God, how many, how many more? And uh, just go like. I saw these people, it's like, okay, I better shut up and start walking. <laughs> just it's so inspiring. It's so inspiring indeed. Um just seeing the commitment, the love for um the outdoor and the love for the mountain. It's uh it's it really opens up um my, my world. Like um I was like you, right? I was born in um in metropolitan country, but it's in, in Asia. So we try park as close as as possible to the mall door that's what we do we would go around and around to find the parking by the door it's crazy so yeah it's 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 so inspiring to hear that and um, i'm glad that your your mom is still like healthy enough to um to to be able oh, to do that that's crazy that's great you know i did a 10 kilometer hike with her last summer oh my god yeah wow. we did rawson lake that's in it's incredible you know, it took her it took us about an hour and a half to get to the lake Oh, actually, it took two hours, but that's because I stopped to do a lot of photography. So really, it was an hour and a half of walking time. Um, yeah, she's steady. She uses walking poles, and she. But one thing, you know, what you said about the shopping mall. Um, uh, we didn't grow up with a car. Montreal is a very transit-friendly city, and it's actually a terrible place. It's where I learned to drive, and it was terrifying. Um, but um, so I grew up walking, always, and I have no patience to wait for a bus. So I blew off the high heels pretty early in my teenage life because that was stupid. I couldn't walk anywhere in the darn things. Um, I wore them to the dance club once in a while, but I got rid of them too. You can't dance in them either. <laughs> so, I agree. But walking is something that I grew up doing. And, um, and I walked. I would go for long, long walks in Montreal. And when I got to the mountains, you know, that, and my mom walks like an hour and a half every day. That's one of the reasons she's so healthy at 83. She's out there walking every day. She, yeah, off she goes. And if it's icy, she puts spikes on her boots. She actually has trouble putting the, putting the spikes on her boots. So she has two pairs of boots, one pair that she keeps the spikes on. That's <laughs> so, smart. Yeah, that is very smart. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. That's but very anyway, incredible. Walking is, and if I'm somewhere different or new, um, walking is the best way to explore a place. And yes. it's the best way to stay healthy. I agree. 
So how, how does this how does this all like fit in with um with um okay. with writing and photography? You know, like uh, how how when do you actually start writing and um how, when you decided that this was for me? Like you know, I'm 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 not gonna do this corporate lifestyle or whatever the you know the 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 rest of the world is doing. But you're you're taking a really courageous uh, path in you know in in the create creative world and. We all know it's it's a it's a tough industry to 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 break into, um, especially when you just started. So how does how does this passion come about, and how do you know that this was for you? I'll say, um, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So that's pretty much. Um, when I got to Banff, you know, I was twenty years old. Um, when you live in a small mountain town, you don't have. There are more options now, but there weren't a lot of job options. So, of course, I learned to do retail and waitressing, and I worked in ski shops, uh, snowboard shops through the 90, in the early 90s. Um, uh, sold sportswear a lot, um, and I waitressed. And waitressing was when I started writing. I never, I've never been part of the corporate world. Um, I've never had a good-paying job. So, um, I kind of envy people who do that for a period of time and then have a nest egg before they go to the creative thing. But I skipped that part. So, um, but I, yeah, I did retail and waitressing for a long time. I worked with the tourists, and I learned a ton working with our tourists because people save their money and from all over the world save their money to come and see the Canadian Rockies. Wow, that's humbling, and I get to live here. It's not easy. <laughs> but um, and so after about writing was something I always did. I, I kept a journal since the age of 11 or 12. Uh, I, I, and the journal was just all about me all the time and the life I was living, um, whatever year. But then after being in the mountains about 10 years, one thing that happened was um, outdoor magazines, powder, ski magazine, which just closed this year, broke my heart. Powder, bike, mountain bike magazine. Um, I was reading these magazines and um, and I thought, well, I'm living this life. I should be writing about this too. So I started that way. I didn't do really well with the magazine, with the American magazines. I, I didn't know how to pitch to them. They weren't looking for outside stories. And, um, but I did. So it started with uh, local, the local newspapers, though. Um, I started writing a column every couple of weeks, and it was. Editor, the editor of the Banff newspaper at the time, his name is Dave Rooney. I think he's still in Revelstoke now. Um, he told me never to write without getting paid. And I'll say that, man, then I got, I didn't get paid a lot, but writing pays half as much now. Uh, like writing for an online magazine pays less than I got paid 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, at the higher levels, writing can pay. So anyone writing for National Geographic is getting paid well. Um, uh, but anyways, but I saw that the thing was, uh, my friends were ski patrollers. They were avalanche technicians. They were training to be mountain guides. Now they're all veteran, veteran mountain guides. They're senior mountain guides. Um, and I felt that there was, in our, in our local newspaper in Banff, there was a lot of focus on the business community and on downhill skiing, but I was living a backcountry life. I was living skiing away from the ski hills and backpacking. I started mountaineering and climbing, and I, I learned there was a lot of history in this area that went with those activities. But at that time, 
nobody was writing about it. And there were, and I learned, I worked part-time for a heli ski company for a number of years and met a lot of the older guides, guides who started being mountain guides in the 60s and 70s and who were part of the creation of the heli ski industry. I learned a lot from them and, and I realized there were so many stories all around me and they weren't getting a lot of attention in those years in the 90s. Nobody, hardly anybody was writing about them. Nobody, yeah. It, it's very different now because there's so many young people writing, but then there wasn't. And uh, so I started doing it and I got a lot of encouragement. Uh, I got a lot of work. People were, yeah, I, I got a lot of assignments from that, mostly in the mountain community, but I got some awesome, awesome assignments. I did, and over the years, 10 biographical booklets on very special, accomplished mountain people. I just, I learned a lot of stories. So for me, it was about stories that were happening all around me and I didn't, I didn't feel like they were being recorded very well. And also, um, some of the early stories had been recorded. There were some history books, but what was happening in the 90s and the 2000s, the 80s, yeah, like even the 70s, there was a lot of, there was a period there that I didn't feel, I felt had been overlooked and not, not written about enough. So to me, history is not what happened 100 years ago. Yes, it is, but it's also what happened five minutes ago. And so I started interviewing all these fascinating people around me who were living really yeah. interesting lives. That's really cool, yeah. I mean, um, I think one, thing, one of the reasons, sorry. One more thing, and I think it's because I grew up in a city. Because I understood coming from a city and I used to go to New York as a 19-year-old, run around for the day and be back on the plane. But my dad worked for Canada, so I had free plane tickets. And I would be back in, the, in Montreal by dark. Um, because I grew up that way, when I got to the mountains, I knew this world was different and special and unique. Yeah, that's that's cool that you like you actually share a lot of that. And, uh, you know, like... Um... That's why I like to slow down my travel. I travel to a lot of countries. I think it was like 29 countries or something like that. But it's, it's very few that I actually get to spend a lot of time and go into a little bit more of the culture and the, the lifestyle. And, you know, I spent here for almost two years now. And, um, you know, I think the history part of it, like I haven't really scratched, even scratched the surface. So it's been incredible to kind of see like, you know, every now and then people would post this like old photos from back there and share a little bit of history and just go like, wow, that's incredible. Um, there's just, yeah, it's just like an unworldly thing, isn't it? When, especially I suppose back there, you know, when it's a little bit more untouched, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And um, how does photography, so, so how do you go from writing to photography? Um, you know, how, how do you start saying, well, I actually enjoy photography? Um, I've always had a bit of some interest in photography. Um, in Montreal, my dad actually had a little Pentax and he would set up a dark room in the bathroom. He had a black curtain and, um, and a couple of the places we lived, he was able to do that. And then the last place, I lived with my parents when I was in Sijep, which is Quebec College. Um, yeah, he wasn't able to do it in that place. But anyways, it's something so there was always a bit of an exposure to it. Um, and when I came out to the mountains, um, uh, I, I went lots of years without having a camera because in those days you had to buy film 
and then you had process it. So when you're making minimum wage, you don't always have money for that. So I had, yeah, wow, when I climbed Mount Victoria, oh, it was such a funky day because the clouds were up, right up to the edge of the mountain on, on the front side. So we couldn't see the big drop down the glacier and down the backside was, you could see all the rubble gullies. I didn't have a camera on that trip. And I, I still think of that. Um, digital changed my life because prior to that, um, camera gear is not heavy, not, it's heavy. And I'm small, um, five foot three now. I've shrunk an inch. I used to be five four. <laughs> I think carrying a pack might be part of that. Um, and if I was going to try and keep up with, with six foot guys, you know, I had to work really hard to keep up and carry a pack. And so there were lots of trips where I didn't have a camera, but then the digital cameras came along, um, in the early 2000s, really. And, and I had tried little, periods of time where I had a camera, didn't have one, had one, didn't one. But anyways, with digital, all of a sudden you could have a small pot, small camera that could fit on my chest strap that took decent pictures. So that was great because since about 2006 or seven, I've had a camera with me on all my adventures. And I've gone through a big progression of cameras. Now here I am getting older and shrinking and, and I'm carry I'm using a Sony A7 II. Um, but I don't take it everywhere because sometimes it's too much. And I have a fabulous little Canon um, that I that carry. I can't remember which model it is, it's actually um, getting a little repair right now. Anyways, but it wasn't a cheap one, it's a really nice one, but it fits on my chest strap. Um, so that one I can take anywhere. I can take it. Rock on a rock climb, I can take it up anything, and there's no weight, so it's not a problem. Yeah. But so it was a progression, and the more time I spend in the mountains, especially now because I'm moving a little slower, um, my partner and I take our time a bit more in the mountains. When you're young, you're trying to get to the summit, it's go, 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 and now. You know, all these amazing, beautiful things I see in nature, I actually stop and take the picture now. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, I, I know exactly what you mean. I'm, I'm pretty short as well. I'm like 160 centimeter. I don't know what's that translate to to our feet, but um, man. Yeah, like, pretty close to me. <laughs> yeah. So like trying to keep up with this tall guy, so it's like, I have to do twice steps for every step you take. And, exactly. you know. <laughs> exactly and i got like this big pack because i got my dslr and i'm yeah. not the fittest as well because you know they live here in the mountain and i just like oh and then like you know every time i took a like one photo and i'm like man like they disappear already <laughs> like oh it's it's a tough job for sure for sure you know the the vertical challenge um vertically challenge um problems for sure so yeah i know exactly what you mean and um it's it's really changed the game, isn't it? Like uh, the digital cameras, just everything a lot more compact and um, a lot more possibility. So, yeah. Um, so even, really... yeah, even my Sony mirrorless, like that actually, um, when I have my big lens, I have a 24 to 105, which is a fabulous lens. And it's good for a lot of situations, it's, but it's quite heavy. Um, and I don't take my tripod everywhere. <laughs> um, but I, I just recently got um, a little um, Pointlander um, Heliar super wide because that's great for if I'm getting up high, but it's small enough and light enough that I can actually bring it with me. 
Yeah, no, that's cool. And um, I think that story um, that you share with us in Mount Victoria, um, first of all, that's incredible. You went up Mount Victoria. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place there. I haven't been there myself. It's a big achievement <laughs> for sure. Um, but um, yeah, like um, I think a lot of us kind of go through that sort of uh, place as well where we go, oh man, I really wish I could, you know, capture and share that with everyone. Um, so what are some of the most interesting maybe share with us one or two um experience that you have that um that you are able to capture with your camera it's the little things um i i have some camera with me every time i go back into skiing and it's the simple small things um and 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 I'm still working on my skills because I see things that I wish I could do a better job of capturing something really great um, in that place, but my skills aren't there yet. But I'm working, I've only been working at it really for the last couple of years. Um, let me think. So what are some of the things that you love to capture maybe when you go being, back countries? And, I love being up on the glaciers. Yeah. Um, it's funny because there's a lot of people right now going in photographing glacier caves, which are fabulous. But I like to get up on the glacier and get out there. And where you're just surrounded by this ocean of snow which can see in the distance and, and to be in that world, when you're up in that world in the winter, there's no sound. If it's not windy, there's no sound. There's no trees, so there's no birds. There's nothing growing up there. It's just you surrounded by miles of miles of snow and ice. And it's such an amazing environment. Um, when I give a presentation on my book, which I'll show you guys later, um, on my Glacier book, um, yeah, I have a couple of video clips I use. And it's if you're around a glacier in the summertime, it's water, water, water. So that actually, that environment in the summer is my favorite place to be uh, at the Tove glaciers, in the moraines, with the rocks that have just been recently exposed that, you know, were under ice for thousands of years. and now every year more new rocks are being um being exposed to melt as the ice melts but that's a fascinating environment for me uh with where the water's trickling trickling roaring gushing filling waterfalls um the noisy environment in the summer it, there's so much water going on and wildflowers is the other summer passion that's uh, uh yeah it's uh it's amazing to 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 hear that you go into the glacier it's something that i wanted to do but i never i haven't had the the chance or the skill to be able to travel in the glacier yet um but it's it's like looking at so the other day when i was going to um exploring the ice cave i saw like four people on the glacier and just like man that would have been so wild like just traveling up the glacier so um on glaciers sorry i've camped in a tent on glaciers yeah, that would have been really wild, eh? Like, do you get do you get like blown over like with the with the high wind sometimes? Um, one of the chapters in my stories of ice book is called "How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Wind." <laughs> but um, when you camp when you camp in a tent on a glacier, you you stake it down with your ice axes, your ski poles, your skis. You're tying it down. You build a fence of of snow blocks, like an igloo fence, around your your tent. Yeah, you do a lot of things to. Yeah, because I was like just imagining it. Like if they were going up there and then they pitch a tent, and for whatever reason, if the the anchor kind of comes out, comes out, 
man, that's like a long way down. <laughs> and it's well, a slippery slope from the looks of it. Well, depending on the glacier, a lot of glacier, like when if you get up on the Columbia Ice Field, that's pretty flat up there. Mm -hmm. um, but the wind can throw you a long distance. And I've been I've been knocked over in the wind with the wind is so strong that that it just knocks me to my butt, <laughs> even with a pack on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I want to talk a little bit more about your book. Um, and your book is um, it's it's the story of ice. Um, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, stories of ice. Yeah. So um, and in there you cover a lot about your experiences. Um, you know, which is what you just mentioned here. Um, do you want to share with us what really inspired you to to write this book? And um, you know how how yeah how how does it come about? Um, well, I've been writing about people, mount, the mountain community, for more than 25 years. And over those years, I interviewed, I wrote stories about a lot of um, artists going up on a glacier, creating something from something artistic, being inspired by glaciers. I've been out on glaciers with mountain guides, um, back into skiing lodges, and also with scientists. And and I've been out in the field with scientists as they work and the, the different kinds of research they do on glaciers. There's a lot happening on the glaciers in Alberta and British Columbia, so that's southern, southwestern Canada. And well, all of BC coast, it's the coast mountains is a massive glaciation, glaciated area. Um, so over the years, I have a friend who works for the United Nation he's, uh, in water. So he's, uh, a water expert, and um, he works a lot with scientists too, hydrologists and glaciologists. So from him, I ended up meeting a lot of scientists. But also, over the years, I saw that uh, whenever I saw books about glaciers, so often they were looking at glaciers from the scientific perspective, but not really from the cultural one. And in our part of the world, glaciers are part of our lives, whether you know it or not. Like, some of the meltwater that comes down the Bow River, right through Banff and through Calgary and through Saskatchewan all the way to Hudson Bay. That, that's glacier water, partly. Um, but yeah, we, we have people in this part of the world who make a living on glaciers every day. Yeah, you know, and mountaineers who are out on glaciers every day, scientists, artists. So I wanted to write a book that showed glaciers to be more than just these masses of ice on a landscape that scientists study and tell us they're melting. The glaciers are in the news a lot, but I wonder how much does anybody living in Manila know about a glacier? So, and even in Canada, growing up in Montreal, I had no clue, I didn't know what a glacier was. Um, so I thought, and because of my experience, my writing experience and all the different people I've interviewed over the years and, and my own experiences, my own adventures. So the idea grew from there. And um, I took the, um, so the idea, I had the idea six years ago, and the book came out in October. So it took six years to make it happen. Uh, I had lots of my own interviews and articles in my files, pulled them all together, and then I had to shape it. And then I, I went out looking for news stories, too, because I, I, things I'd heard about over the years, or people I'd heard about, oh, I need to interview this person. I contacted, I got like 20 different photographers to me. Some of their photos because mine weren't good enough to tell the story or people had just great photos that i knew would help tell the stories 
because it's many, many stories. And I tried to tell the story of what glaciers mean to us in this so, part of the world. Share us some of these uh, interesting stories. Um, you know, give us a little bit of insight, um, like a five, 10 minute version, you know, of one of the most interesting part of it. So, you know, we yeah. can learn a little bit more. <laughs> I got one. Um, one guy, uh, I got a phone call one day, uh, or email probably. Robert Maiman says to me, and he's somebody I've been out mountaineering with a couple of times. And he said, I got a story for you. So years ago, he had, um, been skiing up the Athabasca Glacier onto the Columbia Ice Field with a buddy. They were they had tents and all their mountaineering gear, and they were planning to be up there for five days and and climb some summits. But on their way up the the glacier, they're skiing along. Robert was in front. All of a sudden, his world goes dark. He's fallen in a crevasse. Thank good thing they're roped together. So he falls like forty feet into the crevasse. He's in the dark in the ice. And his buddy's on the surface, blah, trying to, you know, building an anchor to to stop him from falling any further. And he was successful in doing that. But his buddy couldn't remember how to do crevasse rescue, how to build a pulley system to get him out of there. And one on one, it's really difficult to pull someone out of a glacier, out of a crevasse. So they couldn't communicate. Like he was calling up from the hole. His buddy was calling down to him. They didn't hear each other because he was so far down. And his buddy had to leave him there. He tied off the rope, built a good anchor, tied off the rope, and then he skied back down the glacier all the way down to the road to where there's a payphone. <laughs> he might have had a cell phone, but this was quite a while. This was like 20 years ago. And um, yeah, so his buddy was able to contact Parks Canada and get the rescue team to come in. Robert was in the glacier for five hours. Oh. Five hours. Never, ever go on a glacier without a humongous down jacket. He put every layer on that he could. He was able to, he put a screw, you know, drill the ice screw into the wall, hung his pack from it. He was able to put all his clothes on and he had to wait in there for five hours in the dark. They came and rescued him. Oh, great. <laughs> he was pretty happy about that. The helicopter full. And we've got some of the best rescue people in the world here. They're world class. So they get him out of the ice, but because um, when you're skiing up the Athabasca, up on the side of Snowbone Dome, there's these cliffs, these seracs, these broken pillars of ice, and they fall off in chunks every once in a while. So it's not a place you want to hang out. The rescuers, they they got him out, but they left his pack and his skis in the crevasse. Twelve years later, somebody contacts him. One of the tour guides, there's guides who do walking tours on the glaciers. Well, one of the guides, she found this gear laying out on the moraine. And it turned out after 12 years, his gear had melted out of the crevasse. It's an amazing story. So he went back there. It had actually, um, because it had been inside the glacier for 12 years, it got all mangled and crushed. And the glacier was moving, melting, stretching, like doing all the things the glacier does. And uh, it actually had pushed, the gear came out half a kilometer from where it went in. And it had melted away. So the glacier had melted back. You know, the crevasse that he fell into no, no longer exists. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, I, that's, that is why I don't go on a, on a glacier. <laughs> I know what you're doing. And he took pictures too. The great thing was um, when he went back and he collected all his gear, he brought a garbage bag <laughs> and he took pictures. So I've got some pictures in the book. And when <laughs> I give presentations, when I give presentations, I have some of those pictures to share. <laughs> That's such an incredible story, isn't it? And uh, I mean, like, I mean, that's that's why you know, like, um, 
if you're listening and you're you know you're not trained you shouldn't go on a glacier and that's why i haven't been traveling in a glacier because i don't have that skill um yeah but that's just incredible and look i mean like as a as a as someone who's been living here in 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 the heart of the rockies you know with basically having the glacier and the snow as um as part of our backyard right um you would have seen a lot a lot of challenges that come with it what what are some of those um challenges because um i know like for for myself like like you say i wasn't even aware about glacier and um actually um only a month ago i found out that um like one of the glacier or most of the glacier here like recedes at a rate of 50 meter per per year which was it's crazy so what are some of the challenges that you've seen around around here um that um maybe you can share with uh, the listener the listener um and give a little bit more awareness of what's happening um glaciers all over the world are melting because our our average temperature all over the world is raising uh whenever somebody says to you oh but that's happened before in earth's history well, there's two points to remember. Yes, uh, our glaciers have melted and returned before, but never have they melted as fast as they're melting now. It's insane how much they've melted in 100 years. And the second thing is that in periods of Earth's very long, long history, um, when the glaciers have melted and returned, those changes happened before humans ever lived on Earth. So we are the first the first humans to live with this kind of rapid temperature change. 1.3 degrees doesn't sound a lot, but if you're a glacier, if you go from, you know, being 0.3 degrees below zero, you stay frozen. You go 0.3, you know, go one degree above zero, you stop being frozen. So um, in society, a challenge is that in this part of the world, and in a lot of part of God, in the Himalayas in a huge way, um, societies and towns and infrastructure is built to expect glaciers to release water, especially late in the summer. When we're not getting much rainfall, our river here, the Bow River, in the, at the end of summer can be 30% of that river could be with glacier flow, not water. And we have no plan for when the glaciers aren't doing that anymore. So that, there's a funny little challenge. <laughs> um, we're gonna have we have some big adapting to do. Um, yeah, it's, for it's crazy. Yeah, it's like yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy to see. Like, um, I mean, when I'm living here, it's crazy to see how the water of the river fluctuates between oh, yeah. between summer and and winter. And um, you know, it's it's only that um. It's only because I, I was able to like experience it the full year to kind of like see and observe this and i'm sure like people who come here for a week or two that would wouldn't even you know aware of this right so um yeah i think it's a really important um message to to share with um you know people and to i guess it's really hard to know about it unless you live in it isn't it you know it's like that everywhere um if you've never been to the west coast of bc and walked in a rainforest of massive old growth cedar trees. It's a mind boggling experience to see that kind of forest. And I've only seen tiny little bits of it. Um, so that, that, yeah, 
traveling and having experiences. I think, though, it's a fine line how much traveling anyone needs to do. I grew up with, as a teenager in, in my 20s with free plane tickets. Oh, that was awesome. Now, I have not been in an airplane since 2011. I don't earn a lot of money, um, so plane tickets aren't part of my picture, but I do prefer road tripping because then you see the landscape as you're traveling through it. And when you fly in an airplane from here to there, you're so disconnected from it. And granted, there are places I do hope in my lifetime to go to the Himalayas. <laughs> um, we actually had plans to go, my honey and I. Um, we were going to go to Nepal last May, so that trip got canceled. Um, don't know when we'll be able to go. Um, and he's got Sherpa friends, so there's a lot of meaning. For me, I would prefer to um, save and wait and do one larger trip rather than a small one. And in my book, in the back of my book, I talk about that, you know, and I can't imagine what you're going to see 30 years from now, because you're like 30 years, 28 years younger than me. Uh, I'm, I'm 59 now. <laughs> Moisturizer works. <laughs> um, use sunscreen. <laughs> but um, the change that I've seen in my life, but one of the freakiest ones, um, there was a statistic, and, and I put it in my book where we have had on Earth as many as 200,000 aircraft in the sky in one 24-hour period. We can't keep doing that. We can't think that that's okay. We can't think it's okay to cut down all our old growth forests, whether it's Brazil or British Columbia, and we're guilty of that in Canada too. We've got a government in, in Alberta right now that wants to do coal mining on the eastern slopes, which is headwaters of of so many creeks feeding rivers that that grow our grow crops in the prairies. It's insane. And so many things that we do as humans for matters of greed or convenience or oh well that'll be somebody else's problem down the road. Mm -mm. It's our problem now. So my book is mostly a ton of fun. It's stories and it's people and it's exciting and it's You'll learn stuff you never imagined. But at the end, we got to think about how we treat planet Earth. So back to traveling. I think traveling less is more. And you said it. So you stayed here for two years. Look how much you learned. Look how much you learned by staying in one place. And I spent two months in New traveling around New Zealand, did some bike touring, rode bus, traveled a whole bunch of different ways in two months. And I got to learn a lot more about the country than if I had flown there for, you know, what? It takes a day and a half to get there, day and a half to come home, so you got like 10 days for your vacation. Ugh. I don't need to see a place that badly. I want to actually learn something about when I'm there. My last big trip was to Peru in 2006, but I stayed a month. I never saw Machu Picchu. I stayed in Moraz, the climbing area. Lots of climbers from Spain, Basque climbers, all the Spanish-speaking countries. They go, and the mountains, they're humongous. They're 20,000 feet. 22,000 for Huascaran is the second highest mountain in North America. It's big, the monster of a mountain. But to, I stayed there for a month and lived in a hostel run by a Peruvian woman. And I got to learn something about the place by staying that long. And yeah. I, I lived in Maui for two months one year. So much rather, I did it in Whistler too, 
for three months, someone here, almost three months. But yeah, staying in one place and, and living with the locals, learning something about it. Because if you get off a plane and go stay in some hotel and eat in restaurants and, and heaven forbid, and, and that's funny because I work as a tour guide, but as a hiking guide. But um, yeah, hire a local, learn something about a place. Like one thing to go to our per, our trip to Nepal will be five weeks when we do it, and we will have a local person take us for three weeks trekking in the mountains for you. I want yeah, to learn about yeah. place. That's, I don't that's, want to pop in for an hour and say I've been there. No, that's very true. Um, I, you know, like um, I think um, people should kind of try to slow down their travel and get off get out of this mindset of ticking the bucket list because yeah. um i have done that and um the thing is the, the experience that you get sure you get to see a lot of this uh, different places but the experience that you get is totally different like um you know like i spent like i said like two years here man like the amount of experience that i get from that experience uh, from that two years is much better compared to two years of traveling to you know 25 different countries or whatnot to just jump from one place to another so yeah totally like i think you're you're very true and um thanks for bringing that up i think it's um people should really try that um at least yeah it, like like we say earlier right it's hard to kind of um to kind of convince you until you actually try it but you know what just try it and see how it actually changed your mindset and your um, your experience in traveling. So yeah, that's that's a, a great advice. You know what else? And that ties into photography too. Because I enjoy taking photos. You know, if we go on a road trip, last spring we went on a three-week road trip out to DC, went to some places I'd been to before, favorite, and other places I haven't, but I'd like to go back to and spend a little longer because I'm enjoying photography so much now, mostly in my home mountain. Because it's a world I know intimately, and I've seen so much crazy beauty over the years, and I want to grow my skills so I can capture more of that beauty. And and I'm going to, and I do that by not going to the tourist spots, um, by still carrying a pack. In October, I went out for two nights by myself with I have a tiny little tent that weighs two pounds. I carried my tripod and my camera and I was out for two nights with food and a sleeping bag and I camped and, and um, God, those are my favorite trips. Uh, I miss my honey, <laughs> but um, to slow down, to wake up in the mountains, that's a, the backcountry is very important to me. I need to spend time where I wake up where there's no Wi-Fi, no electricity, no running water. I go in the winter, usually once a winter, it's not happening this year. Sometimes we ski to huts and do that. Um, and then you got to carry your sleeping bag, but you don't have a tent or a stove. <laughs> so you save a little bit of weight, but then you're carrying glacier gear. <laughs> Anyways, um, but I go to the cabins sometimes in the winter. Um, and I will say, we'll use a helicopter for that. The helicopter flies you there, leaves you there with all your food. There's like 12 of you. And then it flies away and it's gone for a week. And for a week, you have no electricity, no, no running water. Uh, there's a wood-burning sauna. That's go in there and clean up at the end of the day. Um, and we ski tour. We climb uphill on our skis and we ski down and make turns. And we'll do that all day. And yeah, I'm almost 60 and I'm still doing it that way. And those experiences, to be away from my computer for a week, 
Kevin! <laughs> I think that's a big advice, uh, big piece of advice I have for young people. I grew up without a cell phone, without a computer. Get outside and leave those things at home. And if you have access to a national park where you can go camp for two or three or four nights and not have any anything electronic other than your camera, <laughs> but no Wi-Fi. I don't Instagram from my camera. I come home and then decide what to post. <laughs> Nobody needs to know where you are. Give yourself a few days out in nature with no electronics, no motors, no machines, no vehicle, just you and your feet, maybe a pair of skis. And on the season, <laughs> do it that way. Yeah, and no, that's a good. Wherever you are in the world. That's a yeah. good advice. Sorry, yeah. Take the time. That's a gift. And in COVID, I'm so it's so sad when I hear "stay home, stay home, stay home." No, go for a walk. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. Like uh, especially here in the national park, right? We have that chance. So. Um, it's and it's isolated so um you know there's no reason why not and i think like uh, i get the best sleep when I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere and um i don't have anything to worry about in terms of getting notification or whatnot because there is no cell phone and yeah you, you you stop worrying about life and actually like get to to be in peace so that's a really good advice and um yeah thanks for sharing that all right, so we're coming to the hour mark now, and um, it's been interesting to hear your story about you know your adventure in the ice and uh, your adventure moving here and and um, how you get into photography and your view of photography as well as writing. Um, how for people who want to find out a little bit more about um, about yourself, how how can they um, how can they get how can they get in touch with you? Well, it's really easy. I have a website, and it's very well organized. <laughs> but Lynn Martell. So it's lynnmartel.ca. <laughs> .ca is the Canadian <laughs> uh, suffix. <laughs> so lynnmartel.ca. So this is my book, Stories of Ice. <laughs> yeah, and it's a big book. Lots of pictures and it's all stories. Well, you'll learn tons about Western Canada because it's a bunch of history going back thousands of years right up to today. Big mix. Uh, so, and on my website, um, it's all there, lynnmartel.ca, and I've got my books, speaking, and photography. So, check it out that way. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks a lot for sharing that. Um, and, um, you know, I've seen some of your work, and well, like like you say, I think one of the things that I really like about your approach in photography, how you find the small things and focus on the small thing, you know, I mean, I saw like some of your photos that really focus on just the ice or the, the soft um, snow and um, some of them are focusing on the wild, um, sorry, the wild flowers and, you know, instead of the whole scenery actually go into deeper and a lot of um, going to deeper in the landscape and actually take taking a photo of the micro and uh, show them in a grand way. So that that's very inspiring and it's very cool to see that. Um, I think, um, I'm guilty to to um, to look at the the macro level, and um, it's definitely something that I could learn from. I think it, it takes time, um, especially you know we get how about four four million tourists a year normally, you know pre COVID um, coming to the Canadian Rockies to dance to this area, and when you first come here, yeah, it's all big. But it would be the same if I was running around in the, or, you know, walking around the streets of New York City. At first, it's like, oh, skyscrapers. Slow down. Watch. Look around you. And that's where I think 
getting to know one place really well. So wherever you live, whatever you have access to, get to know that place really well. Awesome. That's started. <laughs> That's a great advice. And um, I, yeah, that's a great way to um, close up this podcast as well. So thank you very much for being here, Lynn. Um, it's been um, a pleasure and it's been um, fun hearing a lot of these stories. So um, yeah, Wiki Hunters, thank you very much for tuning in. And um, if you um, are a person who get intrigued with the ice and the snow and the glacier, or even if you're not, um, you know, I highly recommend check out some of uh, Lynn's work as well as her book. And Look at some of the stories, some of the um, challenges that um, it came with, but also some of the um, the culture that is out of the world. I, I, I mean, coming from myself that never been here, never been in a glacier, never seen in a glacier before in my life. It's definitely out of the world when you first time see it. It's, it's quite amazing. So, um, you know, get in there. And if you want to get in touch with Lynn, like um, Lynn say, just go on the website and, um, you know, you can say hi on, um, on, on, um, on her website there. Well, thank you very much for tuning in. And um, if you um, enjoy this um, podcast, don't forget to subscribe and hit the like button. But Lynn, thank you very much for being here. And that was, um, it was a lot of fun. A lot of, uh, it was a pleasure to have you here. And uh, thank you for sparing some of your time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Stan.